Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is part two of a wonderful chat with Johan Hari where we are asking, do we have an attention crisis? Are LGBTQ plus people having an attention crisis? There are so many interesting things. If you haven't heard part one, you've got to go to part one first. So go back to the feed, isn't that? If you have, I'll get out of the way. Here you go. What about queer people and attention? And I'm thinking about likes and validation and all of that. You know, are there any specifics in your findings around that? You see, I had a story in my head that I now realise was ridiculously oversimplified. I thought my attention was suffering, A, because I didn't have enough willpower, and B, because mm-hmm. someone invented the smartphone. So it seemed to me mm-hmm. logical at that time. I thought of the solution. So I had just sold the, the film rights to one of my books, Chasing the Scream, had sold, mm-hmm. and it, it was made into an um, Oscar-nominated film I meant to boast about called The United States versus Billy Holiday. So I had, I had a lot of money. So I thought, fuck it. I, why am I doing this? Why am I letting my brain rot? So I went, I took three months completely off the internet. I went away without a smartphone or laptop. And I went to a place called Provincetown. Have you been to P-Town, Chris? No, but when I was hosting this show with Alan, we said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to P-Town and do a big thing because it's such a gay mecca, right? It's, I mean, (laughs) so I went there because my friend Andrew Sullivan, I'd been there a year before. My great friend of mine, Andrew Sullivan, has a place there. And so I, I'd, I'd liked it when I went to visit him. So I thought, fuck it, I'm just going to go for three months. So I left my phone and anything I had that could get onto the internet in, in Boston. And I took the boat to Provincetown. For people who don't know Provincetown, Provincetown is the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus, right? Um, <laughs> I was trying, I think I got in trouble on an American podcast, uh, sorry, Australian podcast the other day. Because it's it's hard to be too offensive for the Australians, but I think I did it. I was trying to explain to them what Provincetown is like. I just haven't been there, and I said, "If you imagine Byron Bay with less surfing and more fisting, that's basically what <laughs> Provincetown is, right? Uh, it's a great place." Um, so I, I went there for three months, and obviously I learned a huge amount, both about attention and also the limits of digital detoxes. And what came into my mind as you said that is a moment I had in Provincetown. There's a place called Cafe Heaven in the West End of Provincetown. And I was sitting there one day and these two young guys came in. They were like in their, I guess, mid-twenties, both very good looking. And it was very clear from their conversation that was eavesdropping on that they had never met before they'd met on an app, right? Mm. But they weren't there just for a hookup. They were sort of there for some kind of date. And and so I just eavesdropped, blatantly eavesdropped on them for like hours. And what was fascinating, I had a, I was pretending to read Charles Dickens. And <laughs> what was totally fascinating was... These two young guys literally didn't listen to each other. So 
if they had met and they had each just taken turns reading out their own Facebook status updates, the conversation would have essentially <laughs> been the same, right? They, so at one point, one of them mentioned that his brother had died recently and the other one didn't even say, oh, I'm so sorry, what happened? He just carried yeah. on talking. It was fascinating. They were basically having kind of parallel monologues. It was like mm. it was like they were masturbating in front of each other or something rather than having sex, right? <laughs> and it was it was fascinating because you could see they were sort of frustrated with each other, but they couldn't. And I sort of wanted to turn to them and go, you can listen to each other. Obviously, I didn't do that because that would have been even more insane than my intervention in Memphis. <laughs> but now, obviously, narcissism is not exclusively a problem for gay, gay people. That would be an insane thing to say. But I do think... You know, Christ- there's a great writer called Christopher Lash who, who wrote about narcissism in the 70s. And narcissism is, in fact, attention turned inwards. It's, it's when your attention becomes trapped in the ego, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it always comes from a sense of inadequacy, a place of woundedness. And obviously, gay people are more likely to be wounded. We live in a, there's been enormous, enormous progress, but we still live in societies that are homophobic. I think it's partly that. I think also gay people are more likely to be stressed, right? And there's all sorts of interesting evidence about stress and attention. I mean, it's funny, I, I can't help but think about this through the prism of what we've all gone through in the last two years. I remember at the mm. start of COVID, loads of people saying, people who weren't doing the heroic emergency services work, saying, oh, I'm going to be shut inside for ages. I'm going to, I'm going to read Tolstoy. I'm going to, I'm going to learn French on Duolingo. And everyone will have noticed no fucker read Tolstoy and no one learned French, right? In <laughs> fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work increased 300%. And I think... I already understood then why, because I'd done a lot of research on stress and attention. I interviewed an incredible woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who is uh, the Surgeon General of California, the senior medical figure in the state, the equivalent of Chris Whitty. Um, and, and she had explained to me, and a stress she was talking before COVID, so she wasn't commenting on COVID specifically. But when we're talking about mm. stress, she's done a huge amount of research on how stress affects attention and trauma affects attention. Her saying to me one day in San Francisco, she said, Imagine one day out of the blue, you were attacked by a bear and you survived. In the weeks and months that followed, you would find it harder to do something like read a book because part of your brain would flip towards scanning for risk and danger, right? Mm. Something came out of the blue to attack you. So a big part of your brain is like, Fuck, what else might come out of the blue and attack me? Um, now, that's not a flaw in your brain. That's actually your brain working as it should, right? Okay, now imagine that you were attacked by a bear again. You'd likely flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you can't focus on things that are immediate to you because uh, things that are sort of, we think of as deep focus, because you're just, the whole brain is like, what the fuck might come out of the blue next, right? Mm, you're living second to second. Exactly. You're, like, yeah. Well, you're scanning for danger, right? And there's a, a brilliant mm. child psychologist I interviewed in Adelaide in Australia who said to me, you know, Deep focus is a really good strategy when you're safe. Read a book, you'll learn, you'll grow. Deep focus is a really dumb strategy if you're in danger. You'd be a fucking idiot who sat at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel, right? You're going to get shot. Uh, So we evolved to be able to pay deep focus when we feel safe. And obviously, queer people, gay people, you know, we're we're more likely to grow up not feeling safe. And, Mm. you know, to some degree, and some of us are very privileged and that's not the case, and some of us are less privileged, but, you know, we are a bit less safe than other people. Some particularly young people can be significantly less safe than than others. Yeah, and, and different levels of not safe, you know, because I was ostensibly from a loving household and all the rest of it. But I will say that I everything you described there, I basically didn't listen at school because I couldn't concentrate on anything because I was in a state of hypervigilance of like, I need to 
I decided that I needed to make sure I was going to be okay in this room and not get the shit kicked out of me. So I spent all my effort on being funny, making sure I had friends and all of that stuff, which I know there's many people who have many different versions of that. But that is, yeah, like you, the idea of deep focus coming from safety, I think is so relevant to LGBT people. And it's interesting because I actually wrote to my old school, you know, I did really well at primary school. And then I went to secondary school and I did unbelievably badly. Uh, it was Same. extremely homophobic, my secondary school. And then I went to a sixth form. Uh, then I dropped out of education for a year and had a slight disastrous year in my life. Uh, and then when I was 17, I went back to a sixth form college that was incredible. And then I got into Cambridge, right? And I, you know, I did uh, mm. not to boast, but I got a double first from Cambridge. And I wrote to my old school and said, you know, I actually did really well in education, except when I was at your school. And I do think that's because your school was so homophobic. And, you know, actually I wrote to the head teacher and she didn't even write back to me. And I wrote to her again um, a few years later and I said, I'm I'm a bit surprised you didn't write back to me. I'm just concerned for the students who are at your school now because I'd actually met a young guy who had recently been at that school and he said it was still very homophobic. So Mm. I wrote to her and she wrote back. It It wasn't a nasty reply, but it was... I said, you know, there are these organizations that can help tackle homophobia in schools. I'm very happy to introduce you. You know, she wouldn't commit to anything. She was a bit like, oh, I'll think, I'll think about this and get back to you and never got back to me. And that was a year ago or something. And I just thought, really? God, that's really um, disappointing. You'd think that things would be, and many things are better now. And I'm sure it is less homophobic than it was when I was there. I'd be amazed if it wasn't just because the culture is so different. Hmm. But yeah, I, so I think a lot of gay kids... That gay kids disproportionately experience trauma and the evidence that trauma harms attention is absolutely enormous. So there's good news about that, which is when you heal your trauma and particularly the evidence, and this is really interesting, when you release shame around trauma, that massively mm-hmm. uh, improves all, all indicators, depression, anxiety, obesity, a whole range of things massively improve when you get an opportunity to release shame. There's a wonderful man named Dr. Vincent Felitti, who I interviewed in San Diego, who's done really important work on this. It's actually an amazing study that was done by Professor Steve Coles at UCLA, uh, who's an absolutely amazing man, who did a study in the 80s at the height of the AIDS crisis. And what he discovered, I think it's such an important finding, openly gay men died on average two years later than closeted gay men, even when they got healthcare at the exact same time. Um, Mm. and it's because shame destroys you it physically destroys you it psychologically destroys you it's a catastrophe and releasing shame is profoundly healing for your attention for your mental health for your emotional health for your actual body Uh, there's another guy called professor james pennebaker at florida state university who's done really good work on this as well so yeah i think that a lot of these things play out for gay people i think also gay men obviously i know more about gay men than lesbians it's maybe true of lesbians as well gay men are how would I put this? I don't want to put it in an overly broad brush way. A lot of our culture is built around things that are a bit like the values of Instagram. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you should be valued for how you look. You should be valued for how many likes you get. And the evidence is that that's absolutely catastrophic for what well, just for everything, really. It makes you feel like shit. It makes you anxious. Anxiety undermines attention massively. So I think mm. there are sort of, I haven't thought through very much the gay angles beyond just having been in Provincetown. Mm. Also, it was fascinating being <laughs> the only person in Provincetown who was not on Grinder. 
Uh, I mean, Provincetown <laughs> is basically a three-dimensional grinder anyway, right? Uh, so it's I not, you don't that. have to be on Grinder in Provincetown, you just have to literally look around you. But- well, I did think when you said, you know, I went there and didn't have a phone or anything to connect to me, I was like, well, after one night in Provincetown, you've normally lost your phone and everything anyway. So. <laughs> that's very true. That's, that's definitely true. But you said something which I thought was really interesting about the pandemic and how that fragmented everybody's attention and all the rest of it. And and it it made me think of... Um, so when the pandemic happened, and this always happens in a crisis, I sort of went into hyper-focus. So I ended up making loads of pots, pottery, clay and stuff, because it's actually how I sort of get out of the space that I'm in if I'm not enjoying being in the space. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me, I was doing this pottery in the garden, I was talking to my husband, William, and I was like, oh my God, this is like my gay lamp. (laughs) He was like, what the fuck? And I was like... So when I came out when I was 19, I was at university in my, I think I was in my first year. I think it was the very, very end of my first year. And I basically started making this plastic lamp out of um, cable ties. And everyone was like, what is wrong with Chris? He like will not stop. He won't come out of his room. He's just making this lamp. And it was like I was almost like nesting in order to then come out and but I had to go into like this hyper focused place to I don't know ready myself but weirdly for someone who is very fragmented crisis actually makes me focus and I wonder if anyone sort of you spoke to anyone around that as well yeah there's good evidence so short-term stress generally improves focus if I think about when I give a speech oh yeah fuck you know yeah. you, you, you get stressed but that's the necessary stress to make you perform at your best so what you want to do is calibrate the pressure on you so it's enough mm. to make you perform at your best and not so great it overwhelms you in the short term but in the medium to long term if that stress is protracted if it goes on for mm. long periods of time then of course it, you can't be under pressure all the time, right? And this is one of the really interesting things that I, I learned about, one of the 12 causes of attention problems that I write about in Stolen Focus that I think are really interesting. So we place ourselves under so much pressure that we deny ourselves in this culture, we are being denied by the culture, really basic things we need. Like think about sleep, right? We were mentioning before. Yeah. So I interviewed some of the leading sleep experts in the world and it was really chilling, you know. If you stay awake for 19 hours... Your attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk. Wow. But even if you just sleep for only six hours a night for nine or 10 days, again, you get the same effect, right? And loads of us are living at that level. Only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. Hmm. And if 40% of us in Britain are chronically sleep deprived, which means we get less than seven hours a night on average. And it was hmm. fascinating talking to these sleep experts. There was a moment that really drove this home to me. It's a guy called Dr. Charles Seisler who's arguably the leading sleep expert in the world. And he's, he's at Harvard Medical School. And he did this experiment. It's a kind of simple experiment. They get tired people. They're not that tired and put them into brain scans. And what he discovered is you can appear to be awake. You can be looking around you as surely as we're awake now, appear to be. And a whole parts of your brain can have gone to sleep right? So when we say we're half asleep, it turns out that's not a metaphor. We are often literally (laughs) half asleep. So it's interesting talking to all these experts. Why is sleep so important? We think of sleep as a a passive process, right? We say, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, Mm. blah, blah, blah. In fact, sleep is an incredibly active process. The whole time you're awake, your brain is building up what's called metabolic waste. It's what uh, Professor Roxanne Prichard calls uh, brain cell poop, right? You're building Mm. up this brain cell poop. And then when you go to sleep, a watery fluid washes through your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up, and that that 
brain cell poop, that shit that builds up during the day, is carried down to your, your kidneys and your liver and eventually it's carried out of your body. If you don't sleep for eight hours a night, your brain does not clean itself properly. Your brain is literally clogged up. It's like you should never open the dishwasher halfway through the cycle. <laughs> I wish I thought of that metaphor, Derek, when I was writing the book. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. And you think about, we live, you know, we've created, a, a, our society's created a culture where we are so stressed we can't sleep. There's other factors that are going on with our sleep. And obviously I talk a lot in the book about what we can do about this and the solutions, but, mm. but yeah, you're, you're, you you know, you can see how we live in a culture that's got us to neglect even some of our most basic needs, right? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's give listeners some hope because you're very good at identifying, you know, not just what the processes are. And I urge people to read the book to go in deep on, you know, read it properly is what I'm trying to say. Um, But there are some really good things that you come up with about how we can solve it and how it's not forever and all the rest of it. So people should be really optimistic because the thing that really encourages me is that I you know, having learned about the 12 causes of this crisis, I went to places that had built solutions to them. And for all of the 12 causes, with one exception, there's two levels at which we've got to deal with this. I think of them as defense and offense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all sorts of things that we can do as individuals to defend ourselves and our children against this. And I go through dozens of them in the book. I'll give you an example of one. I've got in the corner of my room, uh, something called a K-safe. I'm so buying one. Let's go on, carry on. Uh, yeah, I, I really feel like these cunts should be paying me commission because their sales have massively gone up <laughs> since I started doing this. They, they sold out in Britain because of me. I feel like a QVC person now, but uh, sadly, yeah. sadly, I'm getting no percentage on this. So in the corner of the room, I have a case safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial and it'll lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I will not sit down and watch a film with my boyfriend unless we both imprison our phones. I will have my friends around for dinner unless they lock their phones away. And at first, mm. people find that really difficult. But I always say to them, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing you're proud of took a lot of sustained focus and attention. And when your focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. 
And when you start to get your focus back, the pleasures of focus are so much greater than the shitty pleasures of being distracted all the time. So mm. that's one example of dozens of things that you can do as an individual that I go through in the book. But I want to be really honest with people in a way that I, frankly, I don't think other attention books do. I am passionately in favor of these individual changes. They will make a big difference, but they will only get you a small part of the way. Because at the moment, mm. it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time. Mm. And then they're leaning over and going, do you know what, mate? Uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, fuck you. I'll learn to meditate. That's really valuable. But you need to stop pouring fucking itching powder on me. Yeah. And so this is why there has to be a second level of how we deal with this, which is going on offense against the forces that are doing this to us. That can sound fancy and abstract. So I'll give you a very concrete example. Again, one of dozens that I give in the book. So that case safe that I just talked about, I use that for four hours a day to write. And I'm conscious lots of people will hear me saying that and they'll say, well, fuck you. I can't, I can't use that for four hours a day. I've got a job. My boss messages me. I, I get fired if I did that. And they're absolutely right. Um, and that's why we have to just even think about that one aspect, which is one of many. That's why we had to deal with this. So I went to a place that had dealt with it. In 2018, in France, they were having a big crisis with what they call le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. Mm. And and the French government, under pressure from trade unions, they would never have done it if there hadn't been pressure from trade unions, set up an inquiry to figure out why is everyone so burned out? And they discovered one of the key factors was that 35% of French people felt they could never stop checking their email or answering their phone because then boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble, right? So I can give those people all the lovely self-help lectures in the world about sleep and unplug. It's just a taunt to them, right? It's not a lovely mm -hmm. piece of advice. It's it's actually cruel. Um, and I remember when, when we were kids, Chris, not that long ago, the only people who were on call were the prime minister and, and doctors. And even doctors mm -hmm. weren't on call all the time. We've gone from almost nobody being on call to half the almost half the economy being on call all the time. And it's completely yeah. exhausting people. So what the French government did under huge pressure from workers, from organized labor, from trade unions, is they introduced something very simple. It's called the right to disconnect. It gives every French worker two rights. Firstly, your work hours have to be stipulated clearly in your contract. And secondly, when your work hours are over, unless you're being paid overtime, you don't have to check your phone or answer your email. When I was in Paris, Rent-A-Kill, just before I went there, had been fined 70,000 euros for trying to get one of their workers to check his phone an hour after he left. Now, you can see how that's a big collective change that frees people up to start to make some of the individual changes. So there's lots of other big collective changes I talk about that, that can take on these factors. But you can see how these two things interact. We've got to defend ourselves and then we've got to go on a fence against the factors that are, that are fucking our attention. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's a brilliant book, Johan, and thank you so much for Hooray. having the focus to write it. Well, I just want to say to people, um, like, and... we really need a shift in consciousness around this because... If you're struggling to focus and pay attention, stop blaming yourself, right? This mm. isn't your fault. This is being done to all of us. This is happening to everyone around you. It's not that you're weak. It's not that you don't have willpower. And we need to have a shift in consciousness where we realize our, our focus has been stolen, but we can take it back. And, and we, need to, we absolutely need to make lots of individual changes. We also need to realize we don't only have to ask for these small tweaks. You know, We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies. 
We own our own minds and we can take them back from the fuckers who've stolen them if we want to, but we're going to have to understand what's being done to us and we have to band together to take take on these forces and we absolutely can do it. And they've got to stop showing me hot boys on the explore page, <laughs> even though when I click on no and I click say, I click not interested, not interested, not interested, they come back. <laughs> Johan, you've been wonderful. Just quickly, what's next for you? So I'm doing my book about uh, crimes in Vegas, uh, which will take me um, the rest of this year. I'll be, um, uh, there's a, a trial involved in, in that. So I'm going to be covering that trial. And I'm about to go to Nicaragua to do some investigation there of a trail from Vegas and uh, what else is happening? An eight-part TV series that I executive produced with Samuel L. Jackson, which was adapted from my book, Chasing the Scream, just came out. If people Google Samuel L. Jackson, The Fix, it's a documentary adaptation of my book. Um, I did want to ask Samuel L. Jackson to record my answer machine as his character from Pulp Fiction, but I couldn't bring the nerve to... To, to do that i also did once consider asking oprah to do that but i thought it would actually be really offensive and i couldn't do it C- can you imagine how good it would be if oprah recorded your answer machine message yeah i mean the only plus you have is that i don't think anyone leaves answer messages anymore that's so exactly you right. would have ruined it with oprah and no one would have ever heard it exactly anyway. somewhere in the east they just whatsapp exactly it's a tragic <laughs> a tragic tale but so i'm working on that i'm doing a, the, the vegas book and the vegas documentary and i hope the immediate thing that's going to happen is that i get some fucking sleep because i am beyond tired but uh but good happy cheerful can't complain i have loved loved chatting to johan that was great um and i hope you enjoyed it as well i'm very excited about next week's episode so i want to tell you about it i've got one of my best mates coming on the show because it's world poetry day so we're going to do something about queer poetry and one of my best mates ben townley has a queer poetry anthology called 14 Poems that I have oft oft shared with you and lots of you read and follow, I note. So we're going to be talking all about queer poetry. We're going to be talking about 14 Poems, this wonderful anthology that Ben does, which comes out three or four times a year. What a terrible friend for not knowing if it's three or four. I thought it was four, but I think it's actually three. Uh, you can get it it's a physical thing you get it in the mail you can subscribe to it it's a beautiful thing I love it he is going to be bringing the most incredible poet Sinead Newsom James who is a queer poet who has written oh, these amazing poems about the queer experience and the sort of queer black experience as well she wrote this poem called Black Dorothy about she shared the role of Dorothy with a white girl so Dorothy was Half the play, it was played by a white girl and the other half was played by a black girl, black queer girl. And she writes this poem about the differences between them and it is absolutely spellbinding. So I cannot wait for you to hear all of that. That's next week. It's brilliant. All in celebration of World Poetry Day. Um, And in the meantime, you know, if you don't get distracted, please get in touch on Instagram, Homo Sapiens, on Facebook, at Homo Sapiens Podcast and email your comments, questions, and Les Agony Oncle to hello at homosapienspodcast.com. Take care, all of you. It's been such a pleasure chatting. As always, lots of love. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Powered by Spirit Studios.